Hey, so thank you for joining us here today. We're doing something brand new that we haven't done before, which is you saw the verse that was just on the screens. It's in the book of Hebrews. And the author of the book of Hebrews, whoever that was, one of those great mysteries of the Bible that we just don't know, was writing to them saying like, hey, you need to get past the basics and you need to grow on to maturity. But one of the gifts that we got in the middle of that is that somewhere in the Bible, someone wrote down a list of what are the basics? Like, what is the foundation of Christianity? What are those basic kind of understandings that, that shape Christianity? It's called the foundations of the faith. That's in Hebrews chapter 6, 1 through 3. It's the verse that was on the screens, and it's on the front of your teaching notes. They look like this, and they were in your worship guide when you came today. So here's what we're doing. Over the course of about two years, when we have a Sunday between teaching series, we're going to make sure we hit each one of these topics that are the foundations of the Christian faith. So if you come over the course of about two years, we're going to make sure that you have the grounding and the foundation of Christianity. And the very first thing on that list is repentance from acts that lead to death. And then it moves on to faith in God. So, you know, you get time change Sunday, you lose an hour of sleep, you show up at church and they're like, we're talking about repentance and just like, man, aren't we so excited about that this morning? Who's ready for church today? Guess that's just me. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at, um, we're gonna look at repentance in the Bible. But first, let me pray because this is kind of a heavy topic. I wanna acknowledge that and then we'll dig right into it, okay? Let's pray. God, I just believe that you've got something for us here today. Every person in this room, you have something to say to us. Um, we're here. It's Time Change Sunday, but I just I know that your spirit has something to dig into us, dig out of us, and I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would open us up to what you may want to do and what you may want to change. Help us to see ourselves the way that you see us. In Jesus' name, amen. I swear I'll never do that again. Have you ever said those words? I know that I've said those words. I swear I'll never do that again. And in my life, that's usually followed up in about three months by saying this. I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that again? Have you ever been in that place where you do things, you're not sure why you do things, and you wish that you could change? Well, this idea of deep and meaningful change in your life, that's not surface level, that doesn't come for a week or a month, it comes for a lifetime, is actually part of the reason why I started Renewal Church six or seven years ago. I had been living in um, Charlotte, North Carolina, and I moved to Boston. I left behind friends and family. I uprooted my, my, my personal family. I started a new church from scratch in my living room. The reason I called it Renewal was because I personally had been seriously stuck in my life. I had destructive habits that were hurting me and my wife. I was feeling like a failure every day. But instead of God waiting for me to get my stuff together, God showed up in the middle of my mess and helped me to change. He gave me a joyful, healthy marriage. He renewed my life. And what I experienced from God, where God helped me change and fixed my life, where God renewed my life, I wanted Boston to experience the same thing, and that's why I started a church and called it Renewal. I believe that God is making all things new, but for me, that's not a verse in the Bible or a bumper sticker. It's an experience that I lived, and I believe, and because of that, and I've felt it personally, I know that it can happen for you too, and that's why I started this church. So we're talking about change, essentially. Have you ever wondered why we get stuck in un unhealthy, destructive patterns that we can't escape from? Have you ever been in that place where you're depressed or hopeless because you keep doing the same things over and over and over again and change never seems to come? Maybe you felt like the author of the book of Romans when he wrote this, for I do not do the good I want to do, 
but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Maybe you felt like that before. And this always trips me out. My wife says I think too much. Um, I also talk too much. I have problems, okay? But here's one of the things that I've realized is, I'm like, I'm, I thought I was in charge of me. But if I'm in charge of me, why do I keep doing the things that I wish I didn't do? How does that work? It's almost like there is something else going on, si- on inside of me that's out of control. Maybe you've been at this place and you felt like, I'm so tired of hurting people I love. I'm tired of hurting me. I'm tired of fighting temptation and losing. I'm tired of feeling ashamed. I'm tired of feeling guilty. I'm tired of feeling worthless. Why do I keep doing what I'm doing? That's what the author of Romans is asking. Why do I do the things that I do? And I know that some of you have found yourself in that exact situation, the tail end of a bad decision your friends, your family members, your spouse, your coworkers, they've been praying for you to come to your senses. Maybe they even sat down with you and explained in vivid detail how your life was spinning out of control, but you didn't want to hear any of it. Despite all the warnings from others, you didn't see it. And you start to think, what's wrong with me? Why can't I change? Maybe, maybe it's my family's fault. And if you knew my family, you would think, yeah, that's a pretty good candidate for why your life is messed up. Or you start to think, maybe my brain chemistry is off. That's it. It's a chemistry problem. Maybe I just don't have any willpower. If my parents had made me stay in karate as a child, I would have willpower and my life wouldn't be so out of control. Or maybe you've even said this, it's my job. My job is too stressful. I'm just stressed out. Anybody in here ever feel stressed out? And so we start to blame the things we do and the decisions that we make on stress, like stress is some kind of mind control alien that enters your body and makes you do things that you don't want to do. We blame blame stress. We blame all kinds of things. And the more we blame, the less we change. But I want to ask a question. What if... What if we had accidentally missed the thing that God had intended to help us change? What if God had this whole plan for change wrapped up in one word, but that one word had gotten so twisted and abused and misunderstood that we thought to ourselves, man, I don't want any part of that. Well, I believe that is exactly what has happened with the word repentance. Repentance, when we think about it, has more in common with street preachers and signs than it does with the Bible in many of our minds. There's the classic scribbled on, um, on cardboard and permanent marker, repent or you're going to burn. I was doing a quick Google search, found a guy with a sign, wearing, uh, a sign that said repent and a shirt that said God hates you just the way you are. And I thought, That is the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. When we see how other people talk about repentance, there's no wonder that we don't want any part of that. I mean, who wants to be a part of that? But I'm convinced that if we were to think about repentance the way that God thinks about repentance, the way that God talks about repentance in the Bible, what we would find there is the beauty and power to experience deep and meaningful change in our own lives, that change that we so desperately long for, we could find. Here's the thing. Information is good, but God wants transformation. And part of how God is going to transform your life is through repentance. Repentance is part of that process. So how do we learn what repentance really looks like? We look to the Bible. 
And we can learn about repentance, true repentance, not the culture's version, not the sign version of repentance, but what God thinks about repentance from a man in the Bible who seriously messed up his life. He, uh, he had these 30 body, he was a man who was, he was politically important and he had 30 bodyguards. And one of these bodyguards was off to war. And so this man committed adultery with his fellow soldier's wife. That he murdered his friend to cover up the crime. He managed adultery, murder, and betrayal in one disgusting spider web of sin in his life. And everyone who seemed to touch that spider web got sucked into it and paid the consequences for it. His name was David, and he was king over Israel. Now, um, as David's story unfolds and this spider web of sin sucks more and more people in, Nathan, the prophet, shows up in David's life. Now, a prophet in the Old Testament times, you know, we tend to think prophet and we think, oh, someone who predicts the future. But the job of a prophet was actually to see history through God's perspective. And sometimes the job of a prophet was to speak truth to power. And so Nathan shows up in David's life and he has to confront David about the sin in his life. And this is a pretty good way to die in any absolute monarchy or dictatorship. And so Nathan has this great his great speech, and he, he goes to David, and he's really slick about it. Instead of confronting David directly, he tells a story about someone else, not David, someone else who's committing the same kinds of sin that David is. And this is really incredible to me because this was written several thousand years ago, and you see this ancient understanding of human projection. You know, he's telling a story about someone else's sin, and David's so guilty about what he's done that he gets angry at the person in the story, and he's like, who has done this? I need to punish them because he's projecting. And there's this great moment where Nathan the prophet looks at David and he says, you are that man. And suddenly this spider web of sin, it's the same thing that were to happen if you were to light a match and hold it under a spider web. The heat and the light instantly just dissipates and the power of it is broken. And David confesses his sin and he repents. And when he repents, he does something kind of unique. He writes a song about it, a poetic song that we call Psalms. And and the psalm that he wrote about it is Psalm 51. It's because that's, when you order the Psalms, it's the 51st one. And it is explicitly about this time of repentance in David's life. And the Bible, you will notice here, the Bible is not a book of children's stories. The Bible is a book that covers every human emotion And as David repents, he writes this psalm. Now, what I'm going to do in the next couple minutes here is I'm going to violate every principle of public speaking in the 21st century by reading the entire 51st psalm to you without commentary. And I'm going to really challenge some attention spans because it's going to take like a whole minute and a half. (laughs) Um, But here's the thing. He wrote this whole song, and we have a chance to learn from David instead of learning from failure. We have a chance to learn from the Bible instead of learning from pain. And if this psalm were to help you change and experience change in your life, this could be the most important minute and a half of your whole year. And so I'm going to read the whole thing to you. And after we read Psalm 51, we're going to discuss how to apply the principles of repentance to our own lives today. Because you choose when you get to repent. But the longer you wait, the more it's going to hurt. And the longer you wait, the more destruction you're going to cause in the meantime, in your own life and in the lives of the people you love the most. So let me read to you Psalm 51, and then we'll talk about it. 
Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. To me, there's something beautiful about this. There's something profoundly different than a sign on a street corner. I mean, the first thing you notice is that this song of repentance is all about me, not about you. It's all about what happens inside of me, not what happens out there. David talks about my iniquity my transgression, and my sin. The focus is internal. The focus is on me and how I need to change. It's not about the speck in your eye. It's about the log in my eye. Biblical repentance starts with what's happening in me. And the never-ending focus of the scriptures and of Jesus is that we have an obligation to look inward and deal with the sin inside of us, not start by going around trying to find all the people who are out there sinning and trying to fix their life. That is the start of hypocrisy and self-righteousness in your life. So it starts with me. Then David goes on to say something uh, just, just almost almost insane for ancient literature. You just don't find this anywhere. This is, an, this is an invention of ancient Judaism that's just like, these are the first people ever to do this. David says this about God. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. And you could just kind of pause there because, you know, some of you have tried to read the whole Bible before and you start with the first five books of the Bible and you get to Leviticus, you know, and it's like, what happens? It's like a whole book about sacrifices. I mean, it's like regulation on top of regulation on top of regulation. And if you're taking away anything from that, it's that God really likes these sacrifices. It's like, like with the pigeon and the dove and the goats and the bull, and there's different regulations for all of them. But David here finds something incredibly important in the middle of this. He says, you don't just delight in the sacrifices or else I would bring the sacrifices. He says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. 
O God, you will not despise. In other words, not only does repentance start with me before you, but God hates when you act religious to cover up a life full of sin. Like, that's in here, right? It's like, you can do all the things, you can make all the sacrifices, you can, you can play the part, you can show up in church, you can sit in the rows, you can give the money, you can do all the things. You can show up at Mary Ellen McCormick and serve and help the poor. I mean, you can do all of the things. <laughs> but you can do all those things to cover up the fact that your heart's not right. And that's the path that leads to hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And isn't it true that so many people never give Jesus a hearing because Jesus' people are full of hypocrisy and self-righteousness? Maybe you're here today for the first time, and you're kind of checking out Christianity, and you're like, you know what one of my number one concerns is? That I'm going to end up a Christian. (laughs) But here we see, this is, this, is, this is predating Jesus. We have David, King David, saying, listen, repentance is not just about my behavior, it's about my heart. God is not looking for behavior modification, he is looking for heart transformation. That's the business that God is in, and thank God for that. This leads us away from our culture's definition of repentance to a true definition based on the life of someone who lived it, King David, and someone that the Bible will eventually refer to as a man after God's own heart. Here's a biblical definition of repentance. Repentance is a radical change in my heart that leads to a radical change in the direction of my life. A radical change in my heart that leads to a radical change in the direction of my life. That's the rhythm of repentance. Heart change, direction direction change. Internal change that leads to external change. Changes in my motivations, changes in my desires that eventually express themselves in changes in my behavior. But if you get the rhythm wrong, you end up a self-righteous hypocrite. I mean, that's dangerous, isn't it? Heart change that leads to direction change. Now, don't miss the importance of this. If the rhythm is radical change in my heart that leads to a radical change in the direction of my life, then this is why so many times we try to change and fail. Because if you work on direction change, but not heart change, you're going to end up frustrated. If you work on behavior modification, but not heart transformation, you're going to end up saying again, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that one more time? If we're honest, when we feel the need for change, most of us, do not get to work on our heart. You know what we do? We try to build a better cage for ourselves. You know what a cage is? You go to the, well, they don't really do this anymore, but back when I was a kid, there was actual circuses with like dangerous animals in cages. And there'd be a tiger or something in a cage. They still got this at the zoo. And, uh, you know, the tiger wants to eat the little kids that are out there because to to them, it's just like a tiger-sized snack. And they're running around out there, and the tiger wants to eat it, so you just put it inside of a cage so that it can't get what it wants. But we're not trying to transform the nature of a tiger. We're not trying to say, hey, tiger, you really shouldn't want to eat kids or anything like that. Just, we just say, we're going to put you in a cage so that you can't get to it. And I think just as human beings, this is something I've noticed in myself, this is something I've noticed in people, is when we start failing over and over again, we say, you know what I need to do? I need to put some barriers in my life to keep me from getting to that thing. 
I need to put some rules in place. I need some discipline in my life to keep me from pursuing that. And so one of the things we do is we invent funny diets. It's like, I just eat too much sugar all the time. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm never going to eat a carbohydrate again as long as I live. We create rules to keep us from the thing. Uh, We say, I'm not going to go to that location anymore because that's where I get in trouble. And so we're putting a barrier in our lives. We say, I'm going to put accountability software on my computer. We're putting a barrier in our lives. We say, I'm not going to contact this particular person anymore. We're putting a barrier in our lives. We're trying to build a better cage around ourselves so that we can't get to the things that we want. Now listen, first of all, barriers aren't bad. I've got barriers in my life. I have locations I won't go to, accountability software on my computer, and ex-girlfriends that I don't plan on contacting again until I die, right? Like, listen, that's not bad. That's good. That's wisdom, right? Barriers can can be wisdom. But barriers are a Band-Aid. And they are not going to address the root change of, the root cause of change in your life. Here's the problem with a cage, building a better cage. A cage does not change what you desire. A cage doesn't change your heart. And the reason a cage doesn't work is because you built it so you know how to get around it. You know how to pick the lock of every cage you've ever built. So there has to be some kind of deeper heart change so that we don't want the things that we used to want, which will ultimately destroy us in the end. So the question is really not, what rule do I need in my life to create change? The question is, what can change a human heart? What softens a heart? What refocuses your heart? What rewires your heart? And for the answer to that, we look back to David. And in the psalm, we see what changes David's heart. It's grace. It's all grace. It's God doing for David what David cannot do for himself. That's grace. It's the help he needs that he couldn't possibly provide for himself. Here's some of the things that Here's some of the grace God shows to David. David asked God for cleansing. Verse 7, he says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And there's some Old Testament regulations about people who are unclean or defiled and they, they take a, a branch of hyssop, which is a type of plant, and they, they dip it in water and maybe the blood of a sacrifice and then they sprinkle it and it's supposed to be ceremonially clean. So that's what he's, he's referencing. He's saying, you know, I can't cleanse myself from the things I've done. God does that. And then I'll be whiter than snow. He asks God for forgiveness. You know, it's like if I sin against my wife, I can't forgive me for her. Like, it doesn't work. And so if I sin against God, I can't forgive me for God. You know, that's God's work. So it has to be grace. And so he says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. He asks God for his presence and for his spirit in verse 11. He says, do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Again, things that only God can do for David, things David can't do for himself. God's presence with him, God's Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is God's personal presence with David. He asks God for a willing spirit. He says, grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's asking for internal change. He's asking for something rewired in his heart 
so that it's not just, hey, I don't want to commit adultery and murder again. Instead, he's saying, God, what I want is to want you. And if you've never gotten to that place where you cry out to God and say, God, what I need is to need you, God, what I want is to want you, then you've never gotten all the way down to the core of change in your life. David begs God to do what only God can do, and miraculously, God does it. The grace of God can do what more rules can never do. The grace of God can do what the law can never do. The grace of God can do what regulations can never do, which is soften your heart. So I'm about to share with you a principle that's going to change the way you change. This principle will change the way you parent. This principle will change your marriage. This principle changes everything. And here it is. It's on the screen. Don't ask the law to do what only grace can do. Don't ask the law to do what only grace can do. I was up in the kids' ministry this morning. Um, because we have, uh, we have some, some new servants in there, and we're just kind of reworking some things about, about how we do the kids' ministry, and we're talking to the people who create the lessons for the kids. And these are some of the most incredible people you'll ever meet in your life, these kids' servants who just have a heart to help these kids know Jesus because Jesus loved kids, right? And, um, and for Jesus, it wasn't like, hey, this is the next generation. It was like, no, these are people. This is the current generation, and these are people I'm going to love right now. And so he would say things like, let the little children come to me, or whoever cares for one of these little disciples in my name is caring for me. And so we're up there, and we're talking about what we're teaching the children, right? And one of the things that we, we talked about is this, is that when we make lessons for, for kids, we're not trying to just teach them to follow all the rules, we're not just trying to teach them, hey, Jesus told the truth, you really need to tell the truth. You know what that makes? Pharisees. That makes little tiny Pharisees. And children are already Pharisees to start with. I don't know if you've ever been around them, but they're just like, they're like, Dad, is that a true church? Or do they worship demons? You're like, dude, you need to chill out, bro. And so we have to be so careful, like, with our children that we're not just teaching them to follow the rules. We're teaching them to need a Savior by modeling that ourselves. If we ask the law to do what only grace can do, then we will become self-righteous Pharisees people more concerned about religious observance than a broken and contrite heart. The law is a cage of rules to keep you from sin, but your heart will still want the things that will kill you in the end. But in grace, grace changes everything. Grace makes you generous because God's been so overwhelmingly generous with you. Grace makes you grateful because God's given you the things you, you could never do for yourself. God makes, uh, grace makes you forgiving because of the way God has forgiven you. Grace makes you joyful. Grace makes you, well, grace makes you gracious as a person because of what you've received from God. But more than anything, grace makes you want to know the God who has been so gracious to you. The more grace you receive, the more God becomes beautiful and your sin becomes revolting. And your heart towards God softens. David, King David, threw himself on God's mercy and asked for grace. And I've wondered about this. Like, how did David know that when he turned to God after such a serious sin, 
that he would be loved and not condemned. And I'm not really sure because there's some stories in the Old Testament where people slip up and make a mistake and it's like, bam, wrath of God, dead. And you're like, whoa, that seemed excessive. And here's David who's committing adultery and murder. And yet when he cries out for mercy, he receives mercy. He sensed, I think, there was something about in God's nature. And so how he knew, I'm, I'm not really sure. But here's something I do know, that you and I, when we reach out for mercy, when we ask for grace, we can know that it's coming to us. Jesus went to the cross, although he had done nothing wrong, to pay for your sins so that you would never have to. Jesus was cast from the presence of God so that your sins could be forgiven and you would never be cast out of his presence. Hebrews chapter 10 talks about this reality. It says, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, when it says that, the most holy place was in the temple. It was the place where God's presence was in the temple. And so what he's saying here, or she, we don't really know. What he's saying here is that you can enter into the closest to the presence of God through the blood of Jesus. So we get the presence of God through Jesus. It says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled. There's that same language of being cleansed, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. So all of the grace that David asked for comes to us through Jesus. He wanted God's presence. We gain God's presence. He wanted God to cleanse him. God cleanses us through Jesus. He wanted God to wash him. God washes us white as snow through Jesus. God takes away our guilt. God gives us his Holy Spirit. All of the things David longed for come to us through Jesus. This is the heart of the gospel message, that God does not minimize sin, not at all. In fact, it is incredibly important to God that you don't minimize your own sin, that you would say, hey, I am guilty as charged, like David. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And when we make that confession, the very next question when you're thinking about God is, and God, what is God gonna do about that? And the answer of the gospel through Jesus is, I'm gonna forgive you. I'm gonna love you. Because God knows that grace changes your heart. Grace changes everything. So let me ask you this question, and then we're going to close. You know, today, as we talk about repentance, there, maybe there's some barriers that you need to put into place in your life. And fair enough, it, it can be really helpful. You might need a Band-Aid while you work on the cancer that's slowly killing you. Okay. And maybe you need to get together in community with some other people and share with them what's going on in your life so that they can help you put those barriers in place and they can help hold you accountable and encourage you and exhort you to keep going and fight, again, fight this fight in your life. But I don't want you to walk out of here today without dealing with your heart. So here's the question to reflect on this week. Does God have my behavior or does he have my heart? Does God have my behavior or does he have my heart? Am I just building a better cage, but I'm still desiring things that are going to kill me in the end? Or do I want him more than anything? Because when God has your heart, you can start to face temptations and win. You start feeling victorious instead of worthless. You learn that in faith, you can make it through anything this world throws at you. And instead of feeling guilty, you feel grateful for the change God has brought into your life. 
Does God have my behavior or does he have my heart? I want to invite the worship team to come back up at this time. And as they come up, I want to share with you one, one final thought. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that I started this church because I've experienced this. And listen, you know, it's a really personal thing. It's hard to share, but it's absolutely true that there have been years in my life where the change went from that kind of slow, gradual, glacier pace of change, went from like a two to a 10. And God just started to change everything in my life. It happened once when I first came to Jesus when I was about 17 years old. And um, God, God brought me from being a self-centered person to a God-centered person. And he saved me. He forgave me of my sins and gave me a new start. But it's not just a one-time thing that you say, okay, one time I'm going to turn from my sin and turn to God and then I'm good for the rest of my life. This is a pattern and a rhythm for the church. Because this happened again for me when I was about 26, 27 years old. And there was this year of my life where God dug deep into my soul and he healed me. He gave me victory over sins that I couldn't ever get out of. He gave me a healthy marriage where I could, instead of being focused on myself, I could focus on my wife. And he gave me this new love for my kids and new love for the church. And I just, because I've lived it, I know it's possible for you. And what I want for you more than anything is to experience the grace of God in your life because when you do, that's when change starts to happen.